Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. I like the story. Live from the gleaming, streamlined, state-of-the-art studios of OutlawRadioLive.com, nestled in our secret bunker somewhere in the Los Angeles area. I don't know where we are, and neither does anyone else. Yeah, in fact, let me tell you a secret bunker story. I just walked into the... I just walked into a secret bunker uh, three houses down. Really? Yeah, neighbor was in the backyard, scared the heck out of him and his wife. What were they doing? <laughs> well, let's they just, let's just say them? let's just say this is the San Fernando Valley. And, yeah, and right. so, what what did you say to them? I uh, I backed out quickly, uh, kept walking, and uh, <laughs> then they came running out, and uh, I said, "Hey, I had the wrong house. Sorry." Oh, okay, <laughs> nicely done. Yeah, you give them the name Zach Gustine. I, oh, okay. Actually, I, get, I, I thought about that. Then I decided Charles Manson would be a better, yeah, a better card. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> That's Frank C. Gerardo Jr. That's a lot of letters for one name, Frank. Yeah, I know. By the way, your guest is here. Oh, good. How's wow. it look? <laughs> uh, Mark C.G. Boyer, our fact checker, is here also. And um, our guest today is a man who did, does need an introduction. <laughs> He's known by his fans as the James Fenimore Cooper of true crime. <laughs> nah, he's known as the James Brown, the godfather of true crime. Oh, I thought it was the <laughs> grandfather. <laughs> Dan Zapansky, famed journalist, host of True Murder. That's a famous podcast. Dan, are you alive? Yes, oh, Good, good have- day. <laughs> I actually like being on the other side of the microphone from Dan. (laughs) Dan grills us like a swordfish when we're on his program. (laughs) In case you don't know, Dan Zapansky uh, hosts one of the world's most famous true crime podcasts because it's called True Murder. It's on Blog Talk Radio, and uh, he has the world's worst killers (laughs) on the show, such as Frank and I. We talk about our books, and we get to be on. Yeah, but your career kill career killers is different. Yes, uh, maybe after you, Frank, when you're gone and I'm still here, <laughs> we'll have Dan be my co-host. <laughs> we do have a problem here with my co-host expiring on us. Yeah, well, I don't have any plans on that. I don't smoke. <laughs> Neither did they. Yeah, well, they smoked. <laughs> Whether they like to or not. <laughs> Welcome to the show, Dan Zapansky. Thank you very much, bro. It's always a thrill. Thank you very much. Wow. Almost, You're looking for thrills. You've come to, the, come to the right place. Uh, I'm eager to talk about one of my favorite true crime books in the history of the world. Frank and I were just mentioning it. Uh, Thank you so much. You're called uh, Trophy Kill, The Shall We Dance Murders. I watched the movie Shall We Dance, where someone in that movie should be murdered, the continuity director, <laughs> because... Uh, What's his name? The the star of the show, not Susan Sarandon, but the Richard other, Gere. Richard Gere is going to show off that he can dance, but he doesn't have a tuxedo jacket or a fancy coat. So he borrows one from a guy who is so obviously a totally different size than he is. He borrows from like this black dude is like six foot five and shoulders. You know, as broad as the expanse as the Brooklyn Bridge. And here's the little Richard Gere, you know, five foot two and a half, you know, 112 pounds. 
Oh, thank you. Let me borrow your suit jacket. And then you see him, and it fits perfectly. Doesn't look like a hobo. No. Shall we dance? No wonder someone got killed behind all this. Oh, Burl. What? Yikes. Uh, this is a really gruesome murder we're talking oh, about. Oh, it's here. the most gruesome murder I've ever heard about. And Dan, Dan has a way of telling this story that is spellbinding. Even though he's got that Canadian sort of drawl thing going on, <laughs> it, it, uh, he, his way of telling it, it draws you in immediately. Well, why don't you immediately draw us in? Uh, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Doesn't this Mr. Uh, Tearhouse or Treehouse, whatever the hell his name is, doesn't he go to, like, the authorities and say, gee, my Honey, buddy, you have to let him go. <laughs> he does go to authorities and, uh, and say, listen, um, I met a guy yesterday, and we got on, and we went uh, back to my place for some drinks, and I passed out at some point. And when I woke, I went into the bathroom, and to my horror, this person, my acquaintance, was cut up in the bathtub. So they only got together for some drinks? Apparently that's, that's it. Yeah. Consensual sex and drinks, ah, okay. as he told the police officers. Okay. Neither was another part of That makes sense. But what did the cops see when they went into that bathroom? Well, that's the thing. They, they they were prepared for somebody being dead, but they did not take this guy seriously for some reason from his demeanor. They said he was extremely calm, and his demeanor, they thought he was kidding. Anyway, they go in there, and they go into the washroom, and in the bathtub, this body is posed and displayed after it's been dismembered, decapitated, sawn in half at the waist, dis disarticulated at the elbows and disarticulated at the knees, like an autops autopsy very surgical and then the from the chest to the neck was an incision and all of the internal organs the heart liver intestines everything you would imagine was not there and not in the room and there's other mutilations one of the eyes was missing um, one of the nipples was cut off there was some dissection but what made news worldwide was that Susan Sarandon's First, it was reported Jennifer Lopez's gold necklace was reported at the crime scene, but it was Susan Sarandon's gold necklace, which is featured in the movie Shall We Dance. Mm -hmm. That made worldwide news. And as you know, Burl and Frank, this is what was his intention, to get famous from this one murder. Yeah, that's what I find so fascinating. The guy had to sit down one day and go, hmm, how can I become famous? I might find a cure for cancer, or perhaps uh, you know something amazing. Invent, I know I'll invent something. I, I'll I'll find some guy, invite him to my house, and dissect him and castrate him and uh, have sex with his head after it's removed from the body. That'll make me famous. And leave a piece of a jewelry. Famous jewelry. <laughs> yeah, because because it, it's not enough to just like <laughs> cut the guy up, dismember him, remove his organs. You have to have the golden necklace. That's right. You got to have wide demographic appeal. Right. Yeah. And this brings in the female audience. And the it, it also bring, it brings in the female audience. It brings in the TMZ audience. It brings in the uh, the Canadian audience. Yeah, and the forensic audience. Yeah. Uh, yep. So and what what was the cops' reaction to to finding a, you know? Uh, and this is in Canada, right? Yeah. Right. They probably went Absolutely. home. Winnipeg. 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 Two thousand and three, July. The second is when he walked into police. Uh, he thought it was a police station, but it was a remand center where people awaiting trial would be in that facility. Uh, this is a Dominion Day celebration gone wrong. Yes, that's what it was. 
The police question him, and, and he sticks to his story, or at least this is his first story, and the one he maintains at trial five and a half years later is that he awoke from this blackout, and he can't remember anything whatsoever. He can't remember anything of this, as they describe later, the pathologist, that this would take hours. And in the letters that he wrote to me in our, you know, I guess we're getting ahead a little bit, there was a correspondence that w ensued between myself and Sidney Tierhus well before the trial, in fact, well before the preliminary. And uh, so I got details, as did the jury and the entire court, about what actually happened that day, refuting clearly that he couldn't remember what he had done mm -hmm. that day. That's what you get for trusting a host of a true crime show. Well, I, I mean, how did you happen to start a correspondence with the guy? What was your interest in the story? And, you know, were you, were you writing about it or were you thinking about writing about it? I mean, how did you get into the story? Well, it was, um, I was doing, I was on, had a radio program basically very similar to, to True Murder and this program, True Crime Uncensored, in that interviewing people for an hour basically uninterrupted conversational like um, so nonfiction and anyway at that time I was also involved with this people for justice group where I was shocked to see some of the crimes in Canada and some Canadian criminals murderers they were very very competitive as you will see with Sidney Tears very competitive with American even killer legends so I was involved with this people for justice and we were looking at these trials we were protesting at these trials we were commenting we were organizing we were looking at things like the issue that came up in this case and that would be that if a person were drunk that that would lessen the intent it would it would make there was no intent to that perpetrator no intent to murder. So unlike the U.S. judicial system, in Canadian, alcohol, Canadian law, if it proved right. to be this person to be impaired, this, that would negate the intent in the murder case, vastly decreasing the sentence down to a manslaughter. And in Canada, typically with good behavior, with parole, it's just a few years. So you could turn what potentially you would consider in any other jurisdiction in the U.S. especially. But in other places in the world, this would be a clear cut, especially with the evidence that I was able to provide, that he provided to me willingly, that this would be easily a first-degree murder. So, so I was shocked, alarmed, that I just actually happened to be in a position to see a case unfold that I happened to just walk into, as I say, a fateful turn of events. And the next thing you know, I was involved later the star witness at the trial so inextricably involved through this turn of events this really fascinates me because i know a guy in ontario one of canada's many provinces whose father killed his mother in front of him when he was about eight years old uh, brutally you know, uh, blew her away and the guy went to prison the dad for just a couple of years and when he got out he had custody of the son and raised him Wow. And, it, yeah. and and I've thought, what the hell is going on in Canada? But I guess now I know there's some difference in the interpretation of your competency. You know what I thought? Please. I was going to share something here for both of you, fine gentlemen. The tens of 
dozens of well tens of people who are listening <laughs> right now if if uh, mommy murders daddy handful and mommy goes to prison for it right who should the kid live with I, I mean, what is, what is this? Is, I no, this know, is, this has been a lot of research on this. It goes against if, what you call if, common knowledge. What mother's parents, I would assume. The best thing for the kid is to live with someone who's not related to mommy or daddy. That sounds peculiar. You think, well, you, how about having Aunt, Aunt Gertrude raise him or, you know, Uncle Ralph? All research shows you take the kids, you give them people that have never heard of his yeah. family their entire life. Wow. That's wow, interesting. It's bad enough if mommy murders daddy. Daddy's gone. Mommy goes to prison. Mommy's gone. Uh, or they sit- take the whole family away because the, yeah, there it's, was the, uh, it's traumatic. Uh, uh, what's her name? Uh, Heather Opal's uh, little brother. Uh, because she went to prison and mom went to prison. The son goes out and starts doing all sorts of criminal acts. Why? So I can be with mom and my sister. So I can go to prison too. <laughs> so so wait, let's get back to Dan though, Carl. <laughs> yeah. Because... So, Dan, you, you were kind of following this sort of uh, criminal ju- miscarriage of justice in Canada. You came across this story, and because the suspect's alibi was that he was drunk, you assumed that he would get less justice uh, under Canadian law, and therefore you started following the story. Is that Am I putting that together properly? Well, I just happened to be in a position... Like I say, with my sort of uh, my passion for this, and I just happened to be doing uh, interview-style radio, so I hadn't thought of writing a book. I had obviously cut up the, cl- the newspaper clippings and kept them and looked at it and, and marveled, but I wasn't a writer per se, and I didn't have that intent till a friend that I grew up with in, in uh, Thunder Bay, my hometown, I visited him with him, say maybe six weeks before. He gave me a call in the fall and said, "Listen, I'm 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 sitting in the district jail here. I'm doing a little bit of time." And he explained the, the serious the, what, what I didn't think was too serious. And obviously, he's going to do some time in in jail at that at right about that time. So he said, uh, "Can you help me out with a couple things?" And I obliged. A few months later, he said, "Guess what? Guess who just happened to walk into my jail range?" So. He he thought he was indebted to me, so I asked him a favor, and he also thought, just from the the news coverage in Winnipeg and throughout Canada and the U.S., and that, like I say, the story going around the world initially, he thought, and of course, Sidney Tierhuis thought, that this story would be worth a lot of money. So, like anything else, I'm, I thought I would motivate these people, both of them, was saying that, listen, why don't we go three ways on the proceeds of this book? Again, people say that's un- unethical, journalists uh, are aghast, but I thought, geez, you've yeah, got to attach <laughs> some money to something, otherwise people won't do a damn thing. You're right you about know? that. So, so, that's so, the way so in it Canada, happened. It there's was, no law against somebody profiting from their crime? Yeah, and he he did. The, the thing is, I didn't break any laws because I knew at the exact same time that the legislature, amazingly, thirty something years later, after after the Son of Sam decision about not profiting off the proceeds of crime, off the notoriety of the crime, that the province of Manitoba didn't have any of that legislation enacted, and set, but they had drawn it up 
and I knew that there was not going to be any opposition to it, and it was likely it would pass. So I knew that was happening at the same time, and when, a year later, when that law passed, I told him about that, and that's what ended our correspondence. <laughs> there's no more reason to talk to you if there's not going to be a check in the mail. It's just he thought I betrayed him in the first place. He didn't believe that there was such a thing, that there, he hadn't read about the law being changed. He, he remarkably, I mean, if you read the book, if you read any of his letters, he's an articulate guy. I'm not, he's, I, he's obviously not, he's not stupid. a, a, a he's low crazy. IQ, but he could be foolish. He could be delusional. He could... Um, you know, he could have feelings, he could be grandiose in his thoughts and what he expected from this. So he certainly thought that this was his ticket to fame. And I proceeded that way, that it was a serious subject, it was a serious case, and his feelings and everything he wanted to say to me, I was accepting. And uh, that's what I was able to do with him based on his own ambitions. I got a question. Be able to for tell you. me what was going on. He said, once the trial is finished, once I've bamboozled the Canadian judicial system and showed everybody how incredibly intelligent I am, <laughs> and also got off my chest in a reliving of the crimes, like, like you know, Burl, uh -huh. incredibly revisiting, reliving, uh, reveling in the graphic gruesomeness of his savage murder and post-murder activities, he wanted this stuff to come out after he was judicated and so have his fame, have his few years in prison. He knew the Canadian system enough. He knew that he would do a few. He predicts right in the letters. He says, I include. He says, ah, you know, I'll do about seven. I'll be out for the, the Winter Olympics in 2000, he figured. Yeah, he's going to get a gold in decapitation. Yeah. So I want to know, what did he tell you uh, happened. I mean, clearly the police. So you know, early in the story, the police come upon this crime scene. You have a dismembered body. He says, "I don't know what happened," but he's writing you letters that sort of contradict that. What is he telling you? He's telling me one of the first questions. Of course, I was so curious. What happened to those organs? What yeah, happened to them? That's my first question too. You know, his hero. His heroes are Jeffrey Dahmer and. Dennis Nielsen. So two guys that destroyed their victims and all evidence of, and Jeffrey Dahmer, who was partaking in eating and cannibalism and necrophilia. So Sidney Tierhughes told me about his sheer enjoyment of not only dismembering, very much like a pathologist, exploring the insides of the, in his internal organs, the the enjoyment of disposing of those organs many miles away, transporting them and disposing of them in a garbage can and in an empty lot, and then being sexually aroused because of that. Oh, yeah. I can believe that. Giving me details of the necrophilia and how great the sex was. Oh, come on. And also, and also in this, too, the motive, which I say first-degree murder would be easy. If you just read it, you know that... There's a dual reason why. He, he found out from the victim who had stolen the jewelry. That's how he came across the jewelry in the first place. The victim met him in a bar 
He was trying to sell the jewelry according to the killer. Sounds feasible. He had just stolen the jewelry from Susan Sarandon's trailer while they're shooting the movie. So he's trying to sell this jewelry. They went met for drinks. At some point, though, they went back towards where the movie was being shot, that outdoor location. What and movie? they must have had a conversation where dance. that jewelry came from. Once Sidney realized that this was a famous actress's jewelry, then he hatched the plan, I believe, quickly to be able to outdo himself from previous. Because as you read, you know, there's no way on earth, it took me a while to wrap my brain around this, there's no way on earth this is his first murder. This is hopefully his last. You're anticipating every one of my questions. <laughs> so, you damn journalist. <laughs> dang it. So, so first of all, how old is, is uh, our perpetrator here? He was 33. And, and the victim? Uh, I believe around the same age, the 31, 32, or almost, I think, the same age. And, uh, and, and your assumption is that at the time he's telling you sort of the, the plot line, that he's probably done something similar before. Well, the thing is, too, what he, he really, like I say, he had been adopted. He's an indigenous person, was adopted by a wealthy white family, which he felt he never fit in. He chronicles in the book as well. I gave him that space to say allegations of physical, sexual uh, uh, tryst with his mother, of course his brother, of course somebody at school, other people. So I, I let him talk about that and then, of course, research whether anyone had ever heard any of these allegations before, and of course no, and no charges. And, but, but anyway, he talked about this treatment and this uh, neglect and uh, rejection from this adopted family. And he was adopted officially after being taken in by foster care by this family, July 2nd. So when he uh, went into uh, police to report this crime that he had done the night before, July 1st, our Canada Day, equivalent of your July 4th, he chronicled everything he did, even the fireworks in the background, while he, with a knife only, butchered this human being just for fun. So psychologically, he's taking a life to replace the life that he had taken from him. He is getting revenge on his adopted family. And they're not the even there. The name. And for all time, ruining that name and enacting revenge on Winnipeg. He had moved out to the West Coast, the idyllic West Coast. He's gay, openly gay, dabbled in heroin, maybe more than dabbled in heroin. He was a junkie, free-spirited out on the West Coast. It was his dream to be out there. And you can only speculate why he would leave that to go to a, a very conservative province next door for not any more money, um, certainly not better weather. What did he do for a living? living. <laughs> He's a chef. A chef? I'm surprised he didn't cook the guy. Uh, so... so but, but being a chef, then, he had some, you know, knowledge of how to... Season properly. <laughs> no, how to no, cut, how would... to disarticulate, you know, limbs. That's not what the pathologist testified to. That's what put so much of the pathologist's testimony there and said, I can't show you where this is a, where you really should look at this. But it, he said unequivocally, this is not the kind of experience you get 
from being a chef because you would, this experience of being a hunter. And this guy, even though he's indigenous, was adopted when he was a baby. He lived in the Winnipeg. No, his, he was effeminate. He was not bonded with his father. There was no evidence he ever hunted in his entire life. He said, of course, when questioned on the stand, he took the stand in his own defense, Stupid. which I predicted. He said that one day, part of the chef training, and no one probably ever researched this, that he went, they went to an abattoir. And so he learned everything just watching some cattle getting it that day. But the pathologist said, this is almost surgical. And he did it with one knife. Not a bone saw. Butcher knife? A butcher knife, yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, uh, so did, I mean, did you find out that he had an, some knowledge of anatomy <clears throat> or, uh, you know, the the, uh, the inner workings of the human body? Or, is I mean, is this just some guy that knows how to wield a, a butcher knife and does it with some panache. crazily accurate panache and elan? Yeah, I saw that with the film work. <laughs> Great double bill. <laughs> I can't see, you know, the thing is he never he provided any evidence other than the abattoir experience, and, and then it really was not brought up by the prosecution. Uh, they had other, I guess, easier things to deal with than, or lesser, lesser points. Remarkably, they had to, he says, well, I can't remember, but what's really they have to counter and they have to address is... You know, they, I forget how many letters they put in and how many have his own drawings, murder drawings, post-murder necrophilic oh. drawings. Stephen Avery. So they had evidence that was incredible, hard to refute from your own client. Uh, so now you have to deal with a different excuse for why did you send this material to Dan Zapansky? So did you get subpoenaed or the material gets subpoenaed? How does the... You know, prosecutor or the defense come into possession of your materials. Well, the thing is, not only I was involved with ju uh, people for justice, so I was, as I say to people, I I'm a citizen first. So if the journalists have some type of code that I've never seen, that somehow they have to protect their client or their subject. Sources. Sources. And so. Uh, there is a code. My responsibility I, I was not year. to Sidney Tierhuis to keep. So Sidney Tierhuis, once he provided evidence of murder, something that would be material evidence in a trial, I was consulting with a law professor in Toronto and a former Crown attorney here, district attorney here, and they said, yes, you know, you have to come forward with this. Would change the dimension of this case remarkably, and you could be charged for withholding evidence. I just didn't go exactly when they told me I should go, but I certainly, within a year, I had I'd gathered. I was I was thankful that the correspondence ended. You so, know, I, I really was. I, I, so yeah, it was, was a year of, of a and there was so much I knew just inherently. So, that there was so much damaging, incriminating evidence that his ship was sunk. I have two questions about Canadian law. One: Is there a presumption of innocence? Yes. Okay, and then two, is there a shield law for journalists or not? Yes. Okay, those are my two questions. But Easy isn't there also a, uh, a silence is golden restrictive atmosphere if you can't go on radio and TV and newspaper and 
yak about this case until it's educated? Adjudicated? Hmm. Educated. Yes, Educated. I mean, there's there's a there's always a gag order on, on whatever happened at the preliminary can't be told. Jurors, even at the end of trials, at the end of appeals, can never speak about their experience and wow. uh, as a juror. So there's incredible amount, and then there's special gag orders like the ones that were issued in the Hamalka Bernardo case. But no, there, there's nothing to be said till that trial is is done. From there, they they advise. That you don't have a book till the appeal is finished, and uh, I published it before that. And by the time the appeal was done, then the book was was out. So, yeah, I didn't breach anything. That's for certain. So, well, uh, but breached my consciousness reading your book, which is available yeah. uh, electronically now for your Kindle. I imagine for your Nook and your Kobo and whatever else it's, you got. I mean, I think it's <laughs> there's po- copies of it you can buy uh, on Amazon too. Yeah, paperback, yeah. Always remember, buy those true crime books new, kids. Yeah, no, no, this is new. <laughs> Good. I, yeah, if you buy it at a garage sale, Dan yeah, doesn't get a dime. Actually, I, I was uh, I was at the last bookstore. I, I love that place. We saw a lot of new and used books. And um, long story short, a guy I know wrote a book recently. I saw three of them there selling used. I thought, Good. I'm glad you're not making any more money off this book, you <laughs> piece of crap. <laughs> I hope he's yeah. listening. Yeah, I hope he's. I doubt he's listening. He's too chicken. Ah, <laughs> he fears you. We're gonna have one of your other he buddies should. is gonna be on the show though in a couple of weeks. Okay, who's that? Uh, Mr. Black Dahlia Avenger. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, that's mm-hmm. awesome, Steve Hodell. Yeah, love Steve. Yeah, he likes Dan Zapansky. You should have, you should have uh, Steve Hodell on your show if you haven't already. I've tried. I've tried. He's yeah. shy. So he's shy. Uh, Steve. Steve is shy. That's what uh, Dan says. Uh. Now, what, when you were communicating with Mr. Treehouse, as I call him, uh, that guy's batch. I mean, he's really a sick guy. Yeah. I mean, clear. Well, I mean, look, let's go back to the beginning of this. Guy shows up at the police department, says, hey. My buddy's not feeling well in the bathroom. Yeah, and the cops show up, and they find a dismembered body in the bathtub. And their, you know, prime suspect standing outside the the room showing zero emotion uh, or fear. In fact, if you hear Dan describe this, this scene, it's almost as if they have the wrong guy. And when you, you know, when you first go through it, you go, oh, this is going to be a great exoneration story, mm-hmm. right? The, the cops jump to a conclusion. It's not the right guy. And then this idiot starts writing letters to Dan. <laughs> Maybe he figured Dan wouldn't tell anybody until the book came out. But the guy did get what he wanted, didn't he, Dan? I mean, aside from well, the money, it. he that's wanted it. to be I, famous. I had read books like yours, Pearl, where you recognize a psychopath, and then you realize they're narcissistic, so play on that. They're, you're not going to play on their conscience. They don't have one, so that's right. what's next? Well, they wanted to be famous. That was obvious. That was obvious. Anybody could have seen that. You have to be a journalist for that. Then play on that, and then take the cues from him. He, he wanted cameras in the courtroom. Shouldn't cameras be in the courtroom? I mean, they're not allowed in the Canadian courts, but he wanted, if they would have said, do you want a camera? Well, sure. Sure. So you can tell. Right. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm all in favor of cameras in the courtroom. Mm-hmm. I, sure. I mean, Canada, U.S., I don't care where. It's nice and to Not, not to, to aggrandize around. narcissistic behavior, but to expose the legal process in all of its... Uh, Here in the USA, the glory. very first uh, one that went on national television was a murder case 
uh, well, the defense attorney was Mickey Sherman. And the other uh, attorneys lobbied uh, Court TV, whoever it was, do this, do this, because they wanted to humiliate uh, the defense attorney because he thought that his uh, approach was nuts. I think it was the Twinkie Burger defense. Oh, really? And, and, In San Francisco? Yeah, and Dan he won. Wayne. He won the case. <laughs> wow. <laughs> they were, they, oh, rats, we were hoping he'd lose. Well, it, uh, you know, I mean, this... It, clearly, the Canadian legal system is different than the U.S. system, but not by a lot. I, the the prosecutor is uh, works for the, I assume, for the province, right? Or does he work for the, the crown? Yeah, it works for the province. Works for the province. And, so. then, and then if you can't afford a defense attorney, do they? how does that part work? Well, that works a little bit more advantageous in Canadian uh, judicial system because if you can... We get a Johnny Cochran interested in your case, the government will pay for the for the tab. Wow. Now they'll give him a reduced fee, but if his fee is five hundred dollars an hour for, and these trials are a lot a lot longer and a lot more involved, means more billable hours. So you can get the equivalent of a Johnny Cochran in middle of nowhere if he's interested. If it helps him promote his career, mm-hmm. if he's interested in it in the case legally, fundamentally. In uh, in Canada, can defense attorneys advertise or or personal injury attorneys advertise? Is there any of that allowed? No, but they can they can be in the front page of a paper right. advocating for a clearly clearly guilty client and then offering a vigorous defense. That's and then posting on their websites about their victory. So is that what happened in this case? Yeah, it's the kind of lawyer that we're dealing with. This lawyer claims. And I have no reason to not believe it because he's, at the time, he was at 700 murder trials that he had represented clients. So now he's up at at least 750, which is almost incomprehensible. Yeah, it's more murders than they have. I mean, that's all of Canada. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That, wow. And in and, um, and, and, and defense attorney, I'm just fascinated kind of by the similarities and differences. If you're an attorney in Canada, can you practice in any province, or do you have to get licensed in the province you practice in? I think you might. I, I think you have to be licensed just like uh, licensed in different states, but I don't think it's uh, you, you're normally, uh, unless you had, I guess, a certain amount of business, because, you know, like say you're in a province and then it's next door and there's a community close by, then I guess you would have a license or get licensed to be able to. Uh, practice law in that province as well. So, so I don't think it would be a hard, uh, onerous thing to do at all. So. 750 murders in Manitoba? No, no. He, he did, well, in Manitoba, in Winnipeg. Okay, in Winnipeg. But you, you, you won't find an attorney, you won't find a attorney or even a prosecuting attorney that has numbers like that. No, I mean that's how. That's a lot. It's, I mean, maybe he's doing him himself. Wow, <laughs> or, just, or, or he's just entering guilty pleas for everybody. That's possible. No, 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 no. Vigorous that's defense. Not, no, it's a vigorous. It's a vigorous defense. He 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 does a lot of murders. Obviously, people. Not everybody has money that does a murder. So he takes on those cases on behalf of the government. So. On the province, yeah, the it's, government. it's so. really weird. It's similar here. Uh, a friend of mine was a public defender, and uh, the judge calls him up to the bench and says, "Why are you working so hard? Don't you remember who pays you?" 
because the yeah. public defender is being paid by, by the, go- yeah, by the county. So it's uh, almost a double jeopardy, we call it, the conflict of interest. It's one of the, the reading a book about the Manson case and, you know, the essentially Bugliosi conspired with the judge in that case to make sure that the worst defense attorneys possible would be handling the Susan Atkins uh, mm. portion of the trial for just that reason, because they could say, hey, who's paying you? Yeah. You know, and and remember, don't get out of line. Yeah. And which is really unfortunate. They do a study here, Dan. I don't know if they do it in Canada or not. On a state-by-state basis on how bad is the prosecutorial misconduct. You know, how crooked are your prosecutors? How how busy are they framing the innocent? Uh, the state we're in right now, California, did not come out too good in that study. And yet, Kamala Harris is running for president. Yep. Mm-hmm. Former prosecutor. You know, and every, you pros- a- every prosecutor we've had on this program, I always ask him, have you been pressured to prosecute someone that in your heart you believed was innocent? I'm sure they say no. They say yes. Oh, really? They Pressure. all admit it. They all admit wow. it. Wow. In that fact, is- one, we had one on from New York, uh, and she said that was the reason she quit being a prosecutor. Yeah, I could see that being a reason to quit. Yeah. I mean, you take an oath, you know. And, and you're, you think this person is obviously innocent. And oh, no, but we can win it. We I'm can sure put them away. I'm sure, that, I'm sure that happens a lot. Does that, but, could that go that, on in Canada but as in well? Dan, research that, Dan, in, you know? in Dan's story, though, that's not the case. No, I mean, no, This no. guy, right? Well, he, he wanted to be guilty. Yeah. If he wasn't guilty, he's not famous. Yeah, I mean, right? That's yeah. This is, so he wanted to be Canada's Dahmer. Yeah, he wanted to be the poster boy of how bad things can be in Canada. Is that is, that's right, right, Dan? Well, the thing is, the thing is, he doesn't reveal. He just intimates, insinuates, and hints at being a serial killer in this correspondence. It's clear to anybody that reads it. So, so were you, were you, you able realize to find that other murders that he might have committed or be linked to? Well, sure. He he writes in the, he writes in his letter to me that the cops talked to him about similar murders in other cities. Similar dismember murders. murders. It wouldn't kind be of a signature cut. Yeah. <laughs> but the thing is, the idea that he could do this first murder at a time when he put it together in a few hours because it was July second, because he had this incredible opportunity. I think he's been killing. I don't know how many, but I know he must have killed before, maybe even ran away from that urge. It seemed to be that's what he was running away from, murder. You don't leave an idyllic job to lose money to go to a more conservative province for no reason. You're running away from something. And so when he came back to the city that neglected him, and he was down and out, living in a a dump of a hotel 100 years old, down and out. He could write as flowery as he wants, but he had an opportunity to get revenge and to get famous, and jail didn't have, is probably a step up from where he was living. Who's probably place. better, too? He'd be treated better. That's what he wanted. He wanted the respect of being a cruel, sadistic. Well, hell, nothing gives you respect like chopping some guy's head off and screwing the eyeball. Uh, well, he's not in protective custody in prison, I'll tell you that much. Wow. Well, he's probably admired there that we're all afraid of him. That's what, I think that's what Dan's saying. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, 
Has anybody so ever followed up and tried to find any other victims of of him? Uh, I have. Yeah. I have. I contacted um, Kim Rosmo. Ros Rosmo. He is a geographical profiler. He's very very successful in the U.S. He was the guy that said, "Listen, we got a serial killer running around here on in, in Vancouver," and they said, "Listen." Shut the heck up, yeah. and by the way, get lost. So he got lost to the U.S. It turned out there was a serial killer. It was called at least one, Robert Pickton, 49 victims. So he now is a successful geographical profiler in the U.S. So I talked to him. I thought, well, he would understand since he was dismissed. His ideas were dismissed. And I said, look at carefully, here's the case for this guy being a serial killer. And he said, well, you know, sometimes these people tell you that. He didn't tell me that. He just intimated that. he want, You know, some killers may just not want to spell it out. They might want you to seduce them, mm -hmm. to, to a, coax them a puzzle. out of the yeah. information. They want to find out if you're as smart as they are. And they know right away you're not because they're smarter than everybody. Well, of course. Which is what this guy's whole premise is, yeah. right? I mean... Yeah. I mean... Of some of these guys in the U.S. anyway, every psychopath that I've run into in my fine career, they want to be their own attorney because they're yeah. so damn smart that they're smarter than everybody else. Yeah, I, I well, I you know I've seen that in uh, trials that I've covered, and quite often uh, you get to the end of the trial, and the defendant will say, "I want to fire my attorney." And the reason that they do that is that they can go back on appeal and say they had uh, ineffective counsel. Right. Yep. Yeah. It happens a lot. And, of course, defending yourself is probably the most ineffective counsel you could ever have. Oh, yeah. How, what do you, I mean, so is his IQ ever tested? No, he's he's quite bright. The thing that came up later with the notoriety, profiting from the notoriety of your crimes, is that he's a painter. So he's an indigenous painter. I will say right here now that he lifts, He's more than influenced by a famous indigenous painter here named Morriso. But regardless, once he got into prison, of course he became an indigenous uh, activist, of course, fighting for all the, the downtrodden indigenous people like himself, wrongfully treated like himself, of course. So, And also this artist. And so what happened right after he was convicted is that there was clearly a website set up. Of course, I was doing the research, not our judicial system in, in the province of Manitoba. And he had clearly articles about his murders alongside advertisements for his paintings. On uh, Obviously, he couldn't operate a website, but somebody was operating his on, website. On his Pinterest board. Yeah, uh, yeah. One half of the Pinterest yeah. board is his paintings, <laughs> the other half is his murders. They're all works of art. Yeah. yeah. So... so uh, you talk about uh, Native uh, peoples of Canada. Uh, I mean, are we talking about, you know, American Indians? Are we talking about Eskimos? Yeah, yeah, well, the equivalent of Canadian Aboriginals. Well, they call them, they call those people Indigenous now. They changed the name a couple times. But Indigenous people, first people on this country, you know, on this land. So, uh, and that's Sidney Tierhuis is an Aboriginal that was adopted into his white family, but the victim came, actually lived like an Indigenous person from a reserve of 300 people in the middle of nowhere. Hmm. The victim? Uh, 
That's who he was, the victim. Uh-huh. And the victim was also a first person or a native Canadian or... Yeah. First Nations, indigenous person, wow. yeah. So this is, that's, huh. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. How did, how did, so yeah, how did the First Nations... He kill one of his own. Yeah, well, I mean, I want to know how the First Nations reacted to this, too. I mean, there must have been some... Yeah, more bad no, there was no, there was no reaction. There was, you have to understand our Canadian uh, mindset when it comes to true crime. They, a couple of years ago, they realized, well, wait a minute, maybe we should do podcasts about true crime. So even the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, who had, you know, held their nose over the way the United States population accepts true crime and all kinds of moralizing about how much we're morally superior because we don't revel and we don't we don't look at true um, uh, crime scene photos. I mean, the OJ special that was like 11 hours or whatever it was, they show they show um, Simpson's wife, photos. Nicole, almost with her head cut off. Yeah, they do. You know, we, we, we say, well, we don't do that. We're, we don't have an appetite for that. Our, certainly our journalism is at a higher standard so that we don't deal with the graphic nature. And, and so what they did with this was the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation says, we're not, we're not even attend the trial because it's going to upset potentially our viewership. Oh, wow. yeah. Oh. You know, so... The, yeah, when I get uh, upset, I keep watching. <laughs> yeah. So the thing is, without, without this case being raised by Sydney, ra- the level of the profile raised by Sydney himself through there's, his incredible there's actions... There's no profile for the case with that. And then, then from the correspondence, again, the correspondence, it was five and a half years later, but now it went around the world, the correspondence, because he mentioned cannibalism, he mentioned digging up graves... There's necrophilia. There's so now it goes around the world again, which must have made him very, very happy. Oh yeah. So it's Damn. the idea that he was uh, was attaining the fame that he wanted was certainly um, that was evident. That was evident. That was his entire purpose, and and everybody was giving him that. Now back to again, I went off track with with Canada. I was never interviewed except for 10 minutes by any Canadian media regarding this book, this case, my participation in it. Soon after was a journalist, a man in Winnipeg. I thought for sure I would get some kind of acknowledgement right. of the, the journalistic feat, I thought. I thought, wow, I mean, I read everything. I haven't seen anything quite like, I mean, there's some stuff, obviously, that Sidney Tierhus and the Trophy Kill case doesn't compete with, obviously, but, I mean, it's just, wow, I thought, wow, I mean, some somebody's going to recognize this as, uh, it's certainly not just gore, it's not me, it's not, I didn't make the but case But it is gory, I mean, it is gory. It, the it, gory story, but I, that's not what, what you're all about. I, actually, the celebrity angle is fascinating, too. What happened with this with the necklace? I have so many questions. Wait, wait, wait. Before I ask that, so, or before you answer, because I've already asked it. So, no IQ test that you know of. How about an MMPI? Any of that kind of stuff that was all of that on? stuff. All of the, all the standard Minnesota. All the all he lists all the tests. So I asked him, hey, listen, I, have the you one seen, thing have you seen because him? he thought he was a partner, well, and I, he was. I, I, how I, else wait, am I going to get that information? Okay, so you. I asked it. him, get this information, give me the tests, and so he told me all the tests, uh-huh. gave me all the names, 
I said, listen, give me, let me know what you said to your psychiatrist. Let me know what he says. Right. Let me know what your lawyer says. Let me know uh-huh. what your lawyer... His lawyer brought him discovery over and over and over again. And then at the trial said, listen, the only reason my client is so versed with this stuff is because we brought out discovery. Oops. But you've never seen any of it. Well, the thing is, is that... I never saw, no, no, okay, thank okay. God. I no, mean, I, I wouldn't want to see those crime scene photos. No, not the crime, oh, scene. Get that your not mind. The crime scene photos, the MMPI or the... No, the, the no. Test. Okay, so, okay. No, no, sorry. No. All right, now back to the question that I asked before I asked that question. The necklace, what happened to it? Well, the necklace, this is what I was told later, and I didn't have this knowledge, but I got this knowledge uh, a few years ago, a couple years ago. And what happened is there's a liaison between the film industry. It's the film business in, in Winnipeg is like the third biggest film uh, location in Canada. It takes a lot of U.S. business because it's like 60 or 70% cheaper through the exchange and subsidies and everything. So um, the last thing I think that Miramax wanted with the sh- follow-up Miramax. to um, Chicago Basically, that's what it was. We're going to capitalize on that, put Richard Gere back into Shall We Dance, dance movie, Jennifer Lopez, dancer, Susan Sarandon, go-to Hollywood <laughs> co-star. And they didn't, Hollywood want this jewelry, they didn't want this jewelry to be, number one, like Burl said, continuity. Right. You're screwing with the continuity. Yeah, it's costing yeah, you Burl, a lot Burl's of money. Right. Yeah. She is not, they can't keep her there. She can't come back. It can't be an exhibit. So they take the jewelry they they FedEx it to New York to a costume. It's costume jewelry, but it's like five thousand dollars. He makes a replica because she says, "I want. I'm not touching that. I'm not touching it." Good for her. And he makes a replica, ships it back overnight, and it's back in a movie. But if you look at the outtakes of Shall We Dance, you see the. It's a pendant. It's a, a gold necklace. It's. It's her own. Maybe even like Sydney says, antique. It's an older bit of jewelry, it seems, her personal jewelry that's been, that was in that movie. So that's what happened with the jewelry. And I think absolutely that the reason why they said in a few weeks, they said, well, it, the, the jewelry has nothing to do with the motive of the murder. And I say, okay, what was the motive for the murder? You have to tell me what the motive of the murder is if you say the jewelry wasn't the motive for the murder. Well, you know. Did they give you a, an alternate theory of what happened? No. So, so essentially what happened is is that uh, your guy meets his victim. His victim admits to stealing this valuable piece of jewelry from Susan Sarandon's trailer. Your guy thinks, okay, guess what? I've got a murder here, and it's going to be really cool because we've got this really great necklace that belonged to Susan Sarandon. And Susan Sarandon, I assume, had reported this necklace missing? Yes. The day before, yeah. The day before, right. So the cops, when they come upon the, the the homicide, and they start, you know, the forensic guys start digging into the scene, probably one of the first things that strikes them is this necklace. Well, to be what it was, though, too, there's two rooms, and so the only thing he didn't do, other than, you know, reassembling the body washed, you know, after it was decapitated, sawed in half, and positioning him, displaying him, which is very, very unusual, the jewelry was in the other room. Ah. The jewelry was in the other room. And I think that if you, if you read some of it, you'll see that he was doing everything he could 
understanding the law. I think he understood the law as well as anybody in that he didn't want to give a premeditation. He, he, wanted he never said thing. anything about a premeditation. He never said, hey, listen, I've killed other people, so I was thinking I was going to go out with a real bang. No, I, he, basically he, he dances around the issue of, listen, I know the law. I would do seven years max, and that's what he would do, max. He would do seven on a manslaughter. And far less with the way that the two-for-one credit for pretrial custody is like, what a gift. Mm. And then one-third off, automatic. It's, so, you know, seven years and he was out, but he would be famous. His idea was, look, I found a journalist. This guy seems to be really attentive. He doesn't, he doesn't mind me telling these incredible stories. I think the world wants to hear what Sidney Tearhues has to say, he believes. And that he'll be popular, like Dahmer and Nielsen, his heroes. But he'll be shocking, and he'll be mean, and he'll go to jail, and but he's homosexual, so it's not so bad. And he'll come out famous, have a book published, make a lot of money from the book, and get back to, to being a chef. Wow. Wow. And did that all work out for him? <laughs> not so far. He got 25 years to... Second-degree murder in Canada allows for 10 years before parole eligibility. And sometimes they'll say, wow, this, this crime is incredibly heinous, but you can get out in parole in 10 years, potentially. But in this case, because of the letters, because of my testimony on the stand all day, I was supposed to be on for three days. He was going nowhere with me. After one day, he cut me loose, the defense lawyer. He was making no headway at all. I was enjoying myself by that time. And the jury and recommended 25 years before he was eligible for parole, which is the equivalent of a first-degree murder conviction, which is pretty rare wow. in this country. So, and I hope that the letters that were accepted at the trial and the drawings and the conclusions from the judge that said this man should be kept in prison as long as possible, that... I'll be, at his, I'll be at his parole hearing, and in nine short years, he'll be up for parole. Wow. In seven years, they'll be taking him out to the movie theaters and to the beach and to the shopping mall, oh, you get preparing to, like, you get him. To, you get to some re-entry into society points? Yeah, absolutely. Wow, you should make sure that there is a movie made of your book that debuts the weekend that he gets taken to the movies. It'll all seem worthwhile to him. <laughs> you got this guy pegged. Yeah. yeah. So I want to add, so we got a few minutes left. Yeah. I'm going to like change gears just a little bit. I'm fascinated by the uh, proliferation of true crime uh, podcasts like this yes. one and yours. And I mean, in many ways, I think yours is sort of the, you know, the James prototype. James Fenimore Cooper. <laughs> the, yeah, the, the James Fenimore Cooper, the prototype of uh, the aborigine uh, of these things. And I just want to know, like, do, are you finding uh, that you have more competition and it changes what you do, or are you getting more people listening to you? Tell me how this, you know, surge in um, true crime podcast is affecting you. The thing is, people told me right from the very beginning, and, I mean, Burl was a big influence, and, and Don Waldman, that format, I, it was encouraging to me, that, that, that intimate, conversational, from person that read the book, knows about these types of things, and that makes for a great interview. People told me, don't 
change a single thing. Don't change anything. And then when I heard some of the programs where somebody would put some annoying music underneath some dry narration, and I said, wow, this is like the worst of both worlds. <laughs> and then I heard a comedy duo. I mean, I, to each his own, but I don't find that much funny about, you know, some of the worst killers. I mean, it's, I don't personally, but it's amazing the kinds of programs that people are willing to listen to, and that's great. That's fantastic. What it's done with me is that even though there's an incredible amount of competition after the light was shone on everybody's podcast with Serial, and then the advertisers jumped on board, is that there are people that listen to True Crime Uncensored. They'll listen to you guys being on my program, uh, Betrayal in, in Blood, in Blue, pardon me, and uh, Taste of Murder. Yeah. Earl yes. has been on probably ten times with every book that he's, he's <laughs> well, written. We and so the kinds of, the kinds of programs that, that you do, the, the interviews yeah. and that I do, and we'll say House of Mystery, there's not that many people that are doing that kind of interview with authors who I regard as the experts. Bye-bye. Cases. We gotta go. Gotta You're go. an expert. Dan Zapansky, host of Two Awesome. Buy the book, Trophy Kill. It's available on your Kindle and your Nook. Trophy Kill by Dan Zapansky.